Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. Uh, this week, down in Florida, an apparently ISIS-inspired fellow decided to shoot up a gay nightclub. And I have had an overwhelming number of emails saying, what do you think of all this? What's your comment on it? And traditionally, I don't comment on such things so that these lessons remain evergreen, so that years from now, people can go back to these lessons and not have to say, well, that's old news. And it's not my job to report the news. It's my job to teach the Bible. But where uh, biblical matters are concerned, it's worth making one very brief comment. It's interesting to watch the pundits and the talking heads try to figure out what's right in this scenario. And so they say, well, it's the guns. And it's more gun control. That's what we need. And, uh, and then they say, the problem is the right-wingers, those right-wing radicals. They're what inspired it, or just all the stories. And the truth is, from a biblical perspective, there's no right here. Whether it was people out partying at 2 in the morning, reveling in their dancing and drinking and stuff, well, okay, that's not right. Whether it's the homosexual element in it all, okay, well, that's not right. Or whether it's the Islamic inspiration to kill 50 people and wound many others, okay, that's not right. It's all, as a combined event, it's all a demonstration again that human beings are sinful. Human beings are depraved on both sides of that scenario. The reason I mention that is that that's very much what the book of Micah is about. That the Israelites, even though they had all the advantages, they had the law, God sent them prophets, they had the covenants, they had the promises, they had everything necessary to know how to properly worship God and how to approach him. And yet they were in such rebellion that God sent prophets to them to say, God's going to punish you. God is going to drive you out of your land. The thing that he promised you, covenantally, the land, you're going to get driven out of. And in fact, God is going to tear down your gods and God is going to put you into a bondage that is unlike anything you've been under before. Yes, I brought you out of Egypt, but now I'm going to send you into the Assyrian captivity. God is really angry about this. So what this really tells us about humans is that anywhere you find them, whether that's post-Garden of Eden, whether that's Israel under God's promises, whether that's People today in the 21st century shooting up gay bars, whether no matter where you find human beings in human history, you find this proclivity toward sin. You find this proclivity toward rebellion. You find this very natural desire to rebel against God. And so we here, being a reformed church, 
We start with the idea that people are totally depraved. We start with the assumption that, that there isn't anything intrinsically good in people, that goodness in people is a result of a good God inhabiting those people and then producing the fruit of righteousness in those people. But people left to themselves, human beings left to themselves, we get uh, what we've seen this week or what we see in old Israel or what we saw when God sent a flood to flood the whole earth and kill everybody, save eight people. You get what you get when uh, we talk about Sodom and Gomorrah or the multiple, multiple examples of God pouring out his vengeance on human beings because human beings just naturally rebel. And so when I saw the Florida story, I just went, yeah, <laughs> there it is. Yeah, it's more evidence that human beings are rebellious. They're just evil. They're just wicked. They're just sinful. I'm more surprised these days, and the news doesn't very often report on it, but I'm more surprised when I hear a story of someone being kind, of someone being good, of someone being godly. I'm more surprised by that than I'm surprised by what happened in Florida. What happened in Florida is just standard operating procedure for human beings. So the book of Micah, you need some background here. We need a little bit of history background. Micah tells us when it is that he's writing. He's writing right toward the end of the southern kingdom, right around 720, 722 BC is the time that Sargon and the Assyrians conquered Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom. And Micah starts his prophecies by talking about God avenging himself against the northern kingdom. So we know that it's pre-722 BC, but we know that his prophecy started somewhere about 15, 20 years before that happened. And therefore, the prophecies of Micah concerning the capital Samaria actually came true in his own lifetime. He saw these prophetic events as forthcoming and they happened. Now, about 110 years later, after the 722 event in the early 600s, you have uh, Assyria being conquered by Babylon. And in the late 500s, 590, in the 590s, you have the rise of Nebuchadnezzar. Right after his rise to kingship, you've got him conquering Jerusalem. And so the rest of the prophecies of Micah are about the fact that Jerusalem is going to fall the way that Samaria is going to fall. So his prophecies are primarily about Jerusalem and Samaria. And Samaria happened in his lifetime, and he predicted that the same thing was going to happen to Jerusalem. Now, the Assyrians, in their conquering of the northern kingdom, took a few cities of the southern kingdom, which you will see tonight, Micah kind of says, were like a gift. Now, the southern kingdom, Jerusalem, just kind of said, you can have those. And they came right to the gate of Jerusalem. They, they actually did attempt to take Jerusalem, but the walls held and they didn't take it, and they returned to their area at that time, having conquered the northern kingdom. But it took Nebuchadnezzar, a hundred years later, to actually conquer Jerusalem, just like Micah said. So that's the time frame that he's speaking in. 
Now, another evidence that Micah knows what he's talking about is that Micah, in chapter 5, actually predicts the exact place where the Messiah is going to be born, Bethlehem Ephratah. And sure enough, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And so you have a prophecy here that is 700 years before the fact, and yet it comes true because of a Roman governor setting a census and a taxation that would send Mary and Joseph from their place in Galilee down to Jerusalem, and then they settle in Bethlehem where there's no room at the inn, and sure enough, Messiah is born in Bethlehem. Well, that's a remarkable amount of specificity for 700 years in advance. But then Micah also talks about the everlasting nature of Christ. Theologically, he develops his Christology, his Messiahology, if that's a word. If it's not a word, I just made it up, and it's a word now. He, he develops it by saying that the one who's going to be born in Bethlehem ever lived. From eternity past, he came into the world. And so on theological details, on physical details, on prophetic details, Micah's batting a thousand. Everything Micah says is accurate and comes true. Now, the reason that I bring up these details that have actually happened, that are historically provable, is because he also says that God is going to restore Israel. Though God is going to punish Israel, just like every other prophet, he says that God is going to restore Israel, and he holds out promises for what is still future to us. It was future to him, it was future to the New Testament writers, and it's future to us sitting here now. If you just look at the book of Micah, and you look at the details, and you look at how completely right he was, you cannot come to any other conclusion than that the book isn't closed yet, the book isn't finished yet, because God's still going to restore national Israel. That also has to happen according to the book of Micah. You get it? Okay. Now, one of the words that he uses a lot in this book is remnant. He talks about Israel. He talks about God's faithfulness to a remnant of Israel. And this remnant language kind of gets picked up by Paul. In fact, Paul's evidence that God has not abandoned the people that he foreknew is that God has kept a remnant. In Paul's language, the remnant that he has kept are those believing Jews who see the fulfillment of all God's promises and prophecies as being in Christ. That, in Paul's thinking, becomes the remnant. But what you'll see in Micah's writing is that the remnant concept was proof even back then that God was still going to restore Israel because he never let Israel be completely wiped out. He let them be punished. He let them be taken into captivity. But he never got rid of them. There are all these people groups that have been on the planet that just aren't here anymore. But Israel has continued to this very day. Right now, we can find Jewish people. And we find uh, Paul saying that God is going to graft in those natural olive branches 
after he finishes with the wild olive branches. And so Paul talks about this remnant concept as proof that God is still faithful to the people he foreknew, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that he chose, the remnant still exists. And then Paul goes on to talk about those who are outside the remnant, the all Israel, who as touching the gospel are enemies for the Gentiles' sake, but as touching the election, they're beloved because of the fathers. They're beloved for the fathers' sakes. And so Paul goes all the way back to the Abrahamic covenant and says, because God made an unconditional covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, our forefathers, he still is going to produce national Israel as an entity, as a kingdom, and he's going to set it up in Jerusalem, the very place where the Messiah has to be sitting on David's throne and all the nations, all the Gentile nations, are going to flow to Jerusalem and their king. And his evidence is there's a remnant. God always has the remnant. So as different people groups have come and gone through all these years, remember he's prophesying around, well, before 722 B.C., about 740 or so, he starts prophesying. So what's that, 2,700 years in round numbers? And he says, God is faithful based on the remnant. And to this day, we can still find the remnant, which is proof that God is still faithful to the promises he made to the forefathers. You got all that? That's kind of reassuring, isn't it? Oh, yes. Because that shows you that God is in complete control of human history. As kings rise and fall, as presidents rise and fall, as leaders come and go, as nations come and go, as people groups come and go, God is faithful to his people. And that's really good to know. So those are kind of the large themes of the book of Micah. Now he begins by talking about Samaria. Like I said, he's predicting the fall of the northern kingdom at the hands of the Assyrians. But then he's going to turn his attention to Jerusalem and say, because you knew that God was angry with the northern kingdom for how they were worshiping and how they were treating people and how they were rebelling, that should have been a warning to you. But because you didn't take the warning, you're also going to fall. And that happened 100 years later. So that's all the time frames and the themes the word of the Lord, which came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. The very fact that he names the particular kings of Judah gives us a good indication of the time frame in which he was writing. By the way, a contemporary of Micah's would have been Isaiah. Micah's writing just a little bit later than Amos, but... He's contemporary to Isaiah. Isaiah, in his book, talks about King Uzziah. He says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. Well, after King Uzziah died, the next king was Jotham, and then Ahaz and Hezekiah. And so this is a contemporary time frame as going on with Isaiah. So they're prophesying right around the same times. Which means if we're going to cover all of the prophets of that area, we have to do the book of Isaiah before we go back to 2 Kings, but I'm not going to do that. 
we'll finish this and then we'll go back to 2 Kings and then we'll finish that and then we'll, uh, at the end of that book, we'll be at the Babylonian captivity. So we'll look at some of the other prophets at that point. The word of the Lord, which came to Micah of Morasheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear, O peoples, all of you, listen, O earth, and all it contains, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. I read a really good commentary that said that this combination of words, again, this Lord God language, who's in charge of all the peoples of the earth, is in so many words saying the sovereign God, the one who is in charge of the armies of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth. He is the Lord God. He is the sovereign God. So listen, O earth, and all that earth contains, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. So just like Amos, Micah is now saying God has a case against you, and he's laying out his case. For behold, the Lord is coming forth from his place, he will come down and tread on the high places of the earth. And then verse 4 is going to sound very familiar. It's very much like the end of Amos' prophecy. The mountains will melt under him and the valleys will be split like wax before the fire, like water poured down a steep place. So what he's envisioning here is that the Lord's going to come back and walk on the high places of the earth. I think it's very significant that in Zechariah we read about the return of Christ and that when Christ returns, his feet do touch a mountain, the Mount of Olives. And it does, in fact, do what he's describing here. The Mount of Olives splits. And so the topography, the geography changes as a result of God coming to earth. Micah says that the valleys are going to split like wax before a fire. You've seen wax in front of a fire. You light a candle on somebody's birthday cake, and the wax starts dripping down. He says that's what it's going to be like, or water poured down a steep place. Water always finds its own level. You pour water on a steep place, it's going to run downward. He says that's what the mountains are going to do when God shows up. All this... For the rebellion of Jacob. There's a good example of the word Jacob, the name Jacob being used again. God, when he wants to talk about blessing his people group, he talks about blessings on Israel because Israel is a, a good and a positive name. But whenever he wants to remind Israel where they came from, he calls them by Jacob's name because Jacob means heel catcher. Jacob means supplanter. Jacob means rebel. And so when he refers to that people group, he calls them Jacob because they're in rebellion. All this is for the rebellion of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. So what is the rebellion of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? Samaria is the capital of the northern kingdom. And then he compares Samaria and says, what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? So he's just compared these two places. Now, 
The Jews in the Jerusalem area would not have liked that comparison because they know that Samaria has gone off into idol worship. Samaria has gone into all forms of rebellion and idol worship. And they would point at the Samarians and the people in the northern kingdom and say, well, we're not like that. At least we have the temple. At least we have the true worship. At least we keep the feasts in Jerusalem three times a year. And here Micah has compared the two and said, you're, you're just alike because the capital of the rebellion of Jacob is Samaria. And then he says, what's the high place of Jerusalem? Well, high places, mountaintops, raised areas, is where all the idol worship was taking place. And so by referring not to the temple of Jerusalem, but to the high places of Jerusalem, he's letting them know that they too are guilty of idol worship. For I will make Samaria a heap of ruins in the open country, planting places for a vineyard. I will pour her stones down into the valley, and I will lay bare her foundations. Now, Gladys is not here tonight, but Gladys has been to the Middle East. She's taken the Jerusalem tours, and I wanted to ask her if she'd ever been to Samaria, because you can look at Samaria, go to Google Maps. This was once a thriving capital city. This was once a leading trade city. But when it was trampled down, 722, the Assyrians coming in, when it was trampled down, it was never restored to the city that it used to be. If you go to Samaria, even today, it's not what it used to be. It's not a grand city. And in fact, there's vineyards and stony ground, and it's exactly like Micah said it was going to be. And they couldn't imagine that that would be a, a place of vineyards and wild animals and rocky soil. They just couldn't imagine that this grand city was going to fall. And yet, 20 years later, it actually occurred. It was right in Micah's lifetime that Sargon came down with the Assyrians and sacked Samaria. For I will make Samaria a heap of ruins in the open country, planting places for a vineyard. I will pour her stones down into the valley. I will lay bare her foundations. All of her idols will be smashed. All of her earnings will be burned with fire. And all of her images I will make desolate. For she collected them from a harlot's earnings and to the earnings of a harlot they will return. Micah now uses the same language that we've seen in Hosea, particularly Hosea, even though it turns up very frequently among the prophets that the northern kingdom going into their forms of foreign idol worship was actually a form of harlotry against God who was their husband. But notice the language in verse 7. Notice that it doesn't say this is what they're going to do. This is what God himself says he's going to do. God is so concerned about the idol worship among his people who he has given the commandment, you will have no other gods before me, that he says, I'm going to smash their idols. I'm going to destroy their city. But it's me. I'm going to do it. Now, it's actually the Assyrians that did it. It's actually Sargon, like I said, that came into Samaria and smashed the city. 
but God takes personal credit for it. All of her idols will be smashed and her earnings will be burned with fire and all her images I will make desolate. For she collected them from a harlot's earnings and to the earnings of a harlot they will return. So because of this, now Micah speaks, says because of this image, because of this vision that I saw, I must lament and wail. He has to demonstrate his heartfelt depression over these things and his remorse over them. So how does he show it? He says, I must go barefoot and naked. That's my reaction. <laughs> Conrad had the right reaction. He went, what? So that's going to get your attention. Hey, look, here comes Micah, the naked guy. I wonder what he's got to tell us. I must make a lament like the jackals and a mourning. Who's got a King James here? Does it say like the owls? Yeah, for me it's owls. Yep. The NASB says, and a mourning like the ostriches. I prefer like the owls because jackals feed on dead things and are primarily nighttime creatures. And owls are basically nighttime creatures. And so he's showing the kind of darkness that's going to descend on Samaria. And he says that I must lament like these nighttime creatures and like these creatures that feed on dead things, like the jackals and like the owls. Why? For her wound is incurable. That phrase means no matter what, this is going to happen. God has declared that he's going to do it. And so since he's going to bring this kind of punishment on the people of Samaria, the wound that has been inflicted against her, the wound that has grown in her, I was going to say that has permeated her, that wound is incurable. The punishment's coming. There's nothing you can do anymore about the fact that the punishment is coming. For her wound is incurable. For it has come, notice the next phrase, to Judah. Okay, now his focus is changing. Yes, it's Samaria. Yes, Samaria is going to fall. Yes, Samaria is going to be taken over. But the same thing is going to happen eventually to Judah. And sure enough, the armies of the Assyrians that attacked the northern kingdom did come into Judah, like I said, and ransacked several cities and took captives from the southern kingdom and even came to the very walls of Jerusalem, which Micah admits before it happened. For it has come to Judah, it has reached the gate of my people, even to Jerusalem. Well, that's another one of those details that he couldn't have known. He's talking about something that's going to happen 20 years to 100 years in advance. There's a constant incursion against Jerusalem. Once the northern kingdom has been taken, the Assyrians attacked Jerusalem on a couple of occasions. And then, of course, it took the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar to actually accomplish it in the late 500s. And Micah saw all of that coming and said the incursion is coming, the wound is coming, even to the gates of Jerusalem. Again, that's remarkable specificity. It has reached the gate of my people, even to Jerusalem. Tell it not in Gath, 
Weep not at all. Now we've got to talk about that phrase, tell it not in Gath. Somebody look up 2 Samuel 120, because that's the first place that we find this particular Hebraism in the Old Testament. It's when David is talking about the death of King Saul. And he uses the, this exact phrase, tell it not in Gath. Somebody got it there? Oh, look, Tom just talked right over you. He just walked right, right on. It's because of her haircut, isn't it? I know. 2 Samuel 120. Uh, tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exalt. So that's the idea of don't tell it to the Gentiles because the Gentiles are going to celebrate over it. The Gentiles will be in the streets praising the fact that the king, the anointed one, the first king of Israel, is now dead. So he says, don't tell it in Gath. Well, that's the very phrase that Micah picks up and says, Jerusalem's going to fall, but don't tell it to the Gentiles because the Gentiles will celebrate that fact. So tell it not to Gath. Weep not at all. Don't even let on. At Beth lay Afra, roll yourself in the dust. There's a little bit of wordplay going on here. Beth lay Afra, if you look that word up, actually means house of dust. And so, again, Micah very cleverly picks that particular city in order to say, this house of Judah, this city of Judah, which is called the house of dust, will roll yourself in the dust. It's one of the cities that the Assyrians did conquer. Go on your way, inhabitant of Shafir, in shameful nakedness. Now, he's going to name several cities of the southern kingdom here. And I'm going to be reading just a little bit, or at least referring from, the uh, Bible Knowledge Commentary because they did a good job of explaining these particular cities because there's a lot of wordplay going on. Mm -hmm. For instance, when attacked by Assyria, Shafir, which we just read about in verse 11, Shafir means beautiful or pleasant. And yet that town, which is called beautiful or pleasant, is going to end up in shameful nakedness. So he's picking these cities in particular, they are attacked by the Assyrians, but he's showing God's sense of irony that these cities' names are also being used to show how, how much they will be in mourning or how they're going to be left in desolation as a result of these attacks. In Hebrew, Za'anan, which is in the end of verse 11, the inhabitant of Za'anan does not escape. Well, that word Za'anan and come out or escape are related words in the Hebrew language. So in contrast to the city's name, the Za'anonites, that's a tough word to say, the Za'anonites would not dare to go outside their city walls because of the warfare. So the Za'anonites would not go out. One thing they would do is stay behind their city walls. And here the prophecy, the vision concerning them is that Za'ana, even though they're going to stay inside their city walls, is not going to escape. They're not going to come out, but they're going to be conquered. 
And that happened. Again, specificity, like I said at the beginning. The lamentation of Beth Azel will be, he will take from you its support. No one would go to this place called Beth Azel, which its name just means a house of nearness or a house of proximity. They were so sure that they wouldn't leave the walls of their city that they wouldn't even go to a close city for protection. And that town now is in mourning, and that town also is going to need support. He will take from you its support. That close-by city is going to not support you, not help you. You're going to fall anyway. And then verse 12, for the inhabitant of Maroth becomes weak, waiting for the good, because a calamity has come down from the Lord, even to the gates of Jerusalem. In Maroth, a word that means bitterness, sounds like bitterness in the Hebrew, people would writhe in pain while waiting for relief from Jerusalem, but no relief would come because of the destruction that would go all the way to the gate of Jerusalem. And because these warring armies were in the area, no help would be coming to it. And again, he predicted this 20 years in advance. And sure enough, that's the way these cities reacted to each other. So harness the chariot to the team of horses, O inhabitant of Lachish. Lachish was very famous for their horses. And so the idea of Lachish having a bunch of chariots that they would line up with their horses was an idea that fit the particular city. She was the beginning of the sin to the daughters of Zion. Now this particular phrase implies that Lachish in some way contributed to the downfall that was happening at Jerusalem and the daughters of Zion, which means the people of Jerusalem. And so Lachish, even though they had these horses and they would have these chariots, they too were a city that would fall before the Assyrians. Because in you were found the rebellious acts of Israel. Therefore, you will give Parting gifts. Now, this is really interesting. This is Micah, again, playing with words. The way that he mentions each of these cities and the particular punishment that's going to come to them and the way that these Hebraisms line up with each other. The word that he uses for parting gift there is a gift that a father gives to a daughter when she leaves his house in marriage. So it's a good gift. You know, it's, it's a parting gift. You're leaving my house. Let me give you a gift. This was the tradition. And Micah says that these cities that the Assyrians take are like a parting gift from Jerusalem. Jerusalem doesn't fall. Jerusalem maintains its strength. And all these outer cities, the outlying cities who Jerusalem sent no help to, are going to fall to the Assyrians. And so it's like a parting gift. It's like, don't, don't take us, but since you're leaving our house, you can have these cities. So Micah writes, Therefore you, Jerusalem, will give parting gifts on behalf of Moresheth Gath, and the houses of Aksib will become a deception to the kings of Israel. That's a really fine point of historical reality. The city of Aksib actually did not support the kings, and as the kings of Jerusalem fell, ultimately to the Babylonian captivity, it was this Aksib city area that turned against the kings, their own kings. 
So again, Micah knew exactly what he was talking about. Okay, so that's the end of the cities. Verse 15, moreover, I will bring on you the one who takes possession. That is a direct reference to the Assyrian that I've mentioned many times tonight, who's going to bring the armies of Assyria, and he's going to take over. He's the one who's going to take possession. He's the one that's going to take the cities into the Assyrian rulership and captivity. Moreover, God speaking, I will bring on you the one who takes possession. So even though this is all happening at the hands of the Assyrians, even though it looks like this is just one nation rising up against another nation, this is really all in the hands of God. It's God who's directing these people. It's God who is in charge of who takes what city and who conquers and who wins wars and where the battles are. And he has already said in great detail which cities are going to fall, again, 20 to 100 years before they fell because Micah knew exactly what God was going to do. Moreover, I will bring on you the one who takes possession, O inhabitant of Merishah. The glory of Israel will enter Adullam. Ironically, Merishah, which means possessor, will become a possession of Sennacherib. And as David had escaped to Adullam, so the glory of Israel, which probably refers to her leaders, would be shamed by becoming fugitives to Adullam. And that's what Micah predicts for them. O inhabitant of Merishah, the glory of Israel, which probably means the leadership of Israel, will enter into Adullam. They're going to escape because that's a border city the same way that David had escaped to Adullam. Again, none of this had happened when Micah said it. But he's even talking about where people are going to go and what cities are going to fall and what city Messiah is going to be born in. I mean, it's remarkable specificity. Have I said the word specificity enough tonight? I'm doing it well. I'm saying the word specificity with great specificity. Moreover, I will bring on you the one who takes possession, O inhabitant of Merishah. The glory of Israel will enter Adullam. So make yourself bald and cut your hair. I think my daughter and I have done that. <laughs> you put us together. She cut her hair. I made myself bald. But this was a sign of mourning in Israel. One way that you would show that you were serious about your mourning is that you would shave your head, cut all your hair off. And that goes all the way back to Job. So it was a very well-known custom in the Middle East that one way of showing your, your mourning, your repentance, was that you would shave yourself bald. So make yourself bald and cut off your hair because of the children of your delight. Extend your baldness like the eagle. What does the King James say there? Does it say like the eagle? Like the vulture? because many commentaries do refer to it as the baldness of a vulture, because in those days they did not know bald eagle. Because we're Americans, we think bald eagle, which is one of the few eagles that can't pull off a comb over. And Okay, never mind. Okay, good. But there was such a thing as a bald vulture. If you look at vultures, they don't have a lot of feathers up on their heads. There's just the raw skin, bald vultures. 
And so extend your boldness like the bold vulture and they will go from you into exile. Now I want to read the first few chapters or the first few verses of chapter 2 because he's continuing the same thought. I don't want you to miss the flow of what Micah's getting at here. He then says, Woe to those who scheme iniquity, who work out evil on their beds. Okay, now he's being specific about the people, the people who are misusing other people, just like Amos talked about selling people just so that they could get sandals, using people as a trading commodity. Now Micah is accusing the people of Jerusalem and Judah of doing much the same thing and in their rebellion, in their iniquity, that they would lay in their beds, they would be on their couches thinking up their evil plans and deciding what they were going to do next in their rebellion. So he says, woe to those who scheme iniquity, who work out evil on their beds. When morning comes, they do what they've schemed, they do it. For it is in the power of their hands. In other words, they're thinking about what can I do? What things can I do? What things do my hands have power enough to accomplish? And then they go and accomplish it. Uh, I've already talked just very, very briefly about this episode in Florida, but it's a good example of what Micah is talking about. This took scheming, this took planning, this took buying guns and buying weaponry and having enough bullets. And this, this took a plan, and it was a plan that was in the hands of a human being. He could plan this and he could carry out this plan. And so he would lay in his bed and devise these evil workings and then ultimately accomplish them because it was within his power. Well, that's the way people have always been, going all the way back to Micah here. He says there are people who are devising ill things, devising rebellion. Again, like I said in my opening words, human beings being depraved, being sinful, will think up ways to rebel even greater rebellions against God. And so he says, woe to you, for it is in the power of your hands. They, they covet fields, and then they seize them. Well, that's what we saw like King Ahaz do. King Ahaz wanted to plant a vineyard that belonged to Naboth. And he went back to Jezebel all depressed and said, well, Naboth won't sell me his vineyard. And she said, I'll take care of that. And she killed Naboth. So... People devise these kind of plans that are, look at the words, they covet. It starts with the coveting. It starts with the desire. It starts with the, I want what I don't have. I want what somebody else has. I don't want them to have it. And so whether it's land or houses or cars or wives or friends or what, anything, it's they have something I don't have. I know what I'll do. I'll kill them. And that's the natural plans of human beings, to destroy things, destroy people, because they covet their fields, and then seize them, and they covet houses, and they take them away, and they rob a man, and they rob his house. Does any of this sound contemporary right now? This is happening right now. They covet fields and they seize them. They covet houses and they take them. They rob a man and they rob his house. They rob a man and his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, 
I am planning against this family a calamity from which you cannot remove your necks and you will not walk haughtily for it will be an evil time. So there's a time coming according to God that's going to happen in Micah's lifetime within 20 years and then like I keep saying within 100 years and 120 everything that he predicts is going to happen and then 700 years as far as the Messiah coming and so he's saying that there's just no way for you to escape your wound is incurable God is going to bring these punishments against you and he's going to make it so that you bow your head. You're not going to be able to raise your necks because you've walked around haughtily for too long. You've had your nose in the air for too long. You've raised your chin and thought you were really something for too long. And I'm going to make you put your head down. From which you cannot remove your necks and you will not walk haughtily for it will be an evil time. On that day, they will take up against you a taunt and utter a bitter lamentation and say, we are completely destroyed. He exchanges the portion of my people, how he removes it from me. To the apostate, he apportions our fields. Okay, it's really interesting language because that's precisely what happened. When the Assyrian captivity happened, after Israel was removed from their land, then all of the apostates, the unbelievers, the Gentiles, the foreign nations came into that land and occupied that land. From that point forward, whenever any of the Israelites would come back and intermarry with any of those people, their offspring came to be known as Samaritans because that was Samaria up there. And the Samaritans, of course, became deeply hated by the Jews. And so everything that Micah is saying actually happened. He did exchange a portion of my people. A portion of the Israelites did go into captivity. And he removes it from me, me being Jerusalem and being the prophet. And to the apostate, he apportioned our fields. He gave it over to the Gentiles, to the apostate. Therefore, you will have no stretching a measuring line for you by lot in the assembly of the Lord. What that's talking about is that you're not going to be able to come to the Lord for judgment anymore. There's going to be no more measuring line for what land is yours and which land is your neighbor's. And you're no longer going to be able to come to God as a judge in the assembly of the Lord and say, judge for me, because he's judging against you. So you have no more plea to God because he's the very one that's bringing all this punishment about. So not only are you being punished, not only are you being taken into captivity, but this is God's plan for you and he's the only one who could change it. But your wound is incurable. Do not speak out. So they speak out. He's talking about the prophets now. But if they do not speak out concerning these things, Reproaches will not be turned back. So he's saying the prophets ought to, ought to be prophesying to you the same thing that I'm prophesying to you. But the prophets are all too often saying, no, it's fine. You're good. No, it's all good. You're God's people. No, safety, security, it's all fine. 
Now, if any of that sounds familiar, those are New Testament themes. Those are prophetic and eschatological themes. The idea that when men are saying peace and safety, then is going to come this sudden destruction. Well, that also happened in Micah's time. There were people saying, no, it's good, it's fine, don't worry, you can rest, you can trust God, it's going to be okay. And Micah says, if they're not saying what I say, don't speak. Just be quiet. Which I agree with him on. (laughs) Because very frequently I want to say, if you're not saying what God has said, if you're not saying what the Bible says, stop talking. Just be quiet. Do not speak out. And yet they speak out. But if they do not speak out concerning these things, reproaches will not be turned back. Is it being said, O house of Jacob? Is this what they're saying? Is the spirit of the Lord impatient? In other words, the answer to that question is no. The spirit of the Lord is very patient and very long-suffering. He has put up with you for a long time as a nation, and you need to be corrected. You need to be punished. Is the spirit of the Lord impatient? And then they're going to ask, are these his doings? This punishment that's going to happen are his doings. He's the one that you can't appeal to. He's the one who you can't go to 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 say, judge for me, because he's judging against you at this point. Do not my words do good to the one who's walking uprightly? If you were good, if you were upright, if you were walking in the law of God, if you were walking in the ways that you've been instructed, if you'd just listen to what the scripture has said and walk accordingly, then God would do good to you. But that was the deal from the very beginning. When he first imposed the law, he said, you're going to do this law, and then I'm going to drive away your enemies, and then I'm going to give you peace in your land, and then I'm going to give you plenty of food and protect you from the wild animals. But but if you don't do this, I will hurt you, and I will drive you out of your land. And that's exactly what he is doing here. All right, we're going to pick up right there. We will pick up there next week. Remember that idea. Are are these not his doings? Do not my words do good to the one who is walking uprightly. Do not my words do good to the one who is walking uprightly. Just remember that phrase. My words do good. My words are a good thing to the one who walks uprightly. To the one who's in rebellion, to the one who's shaking his fist at God, the word of God means nothing. We see that still today. You you tell people, well, God's word says, and they say, we don't care. We don't want the word of God. We don't care that God has stated clearly how we should adjudicate these particular moral issues. We're going to decide for ourselves. But God has always said, My word is good, and good for you if you walk uprightly. Now, one more thing. This was actually going to be included in my opening remarks. And I skipped it for sake of time, but I have one more second, so I'm going to throw this in. From a theological standpoint, talking strictly theology now, talking old covenant, new covenant, talking law versus grace, 
Notice again that in Micah's prophecies against Israel, they had the law. They had the 613 rules. They had the entirety of the Torah that they could turn to. And God giving them all that information resulted in this. And yet today, to this very day, there are people telling us, well, you know, if you just follow the law, if you just listen to the law of Moses and do it, you know, if you'll just follow that, then you'll be right with God. Except that all of human history and all of the Old Testament proves that people left to themselves can't follow the law. The result of doing it is punishment because the law includes right in it a curse. The law right in it includes do it and you can be saved by it, but miss it in any one point. And according to James, you're guilty of the whole of the law. And the law then is no help to you at all. In fact, all that the law can do is condemn you because you've broken it. And so when people say to Christians, New Covenant Christians, who are under the blood of Christ, which Christ took the curse of that law for us at Calvary, and he removed it, and he took it out of the way, and certainly that's what all of the New Testament writers talk about. The very fact that he did that means that we are actually genuinely free. Free from the law, oh happy condition. Jesus has died, and there is remission. Even the hymn writers knew this to be true. And yet, to this very day, there are people trying to lay legal standards on Christians. The same legal standards that resulted in the punishment that Micah's talking about. And if you attempt to approach God on the basis of law-keeping, then this is for you. You get it? Because the law can't save. Jesus saves. And only faith in Jesus saves can get you righteousness. Isn't that what Paul writes? There's no righteousness in the law, but righteousness imputed to us on account of what Jesus actually did and actually accomplished is actually a righteousness that will carry us into eternity. And the law results in this kind of punishment. So that's the book of Micah so far. That's the first chapter. It's a short book. There's only six chapters, I think. So we'll go through it fairly quickly. And uh, hmm? seven. Seven. There's only seven chapters. <laughs> so we'll be through it in just a few weeks. It's hardly worth putting a page on our website for that, but we will do that. Any questions? It's good to know that God is so in control of human history that he can talk about what's going to happen in 20 years, what's going to happen in 100 years, what's going to happen in 700 years, and what's going to happen that hasn't happened yet. And that's what the book of Micah contains. And there's no question about when it was written. He already told us right in the book who was king in the, in the southern kingdom when he was predicting these things. And there's no question that the Assyrian captivity happened. And there's no question that Jerusalem fell. And there's, there's no question that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And all these things that he said are absolutely true and absolutely right. That means that everything he said about the restoration of Israel 
and the ultimate glory of that kingdom also has to come true. Got it? Well, then we're done. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.